The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. If you would, please open your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. While the sermon will be looking at verses 20 through 23, let's begin reading back in verse 16. you're about to hear really is God's word given to you as a kingly gift. Please hear it as such. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Well, this is indeed the word of the Lord. Now the words you've been waiting for, you may be seated. Let's go before the throne in prayer. Almighty God, we lift our hearts and our voices to you and we pray that according to the name of our Savior that you would hear us and that you would answer us from your holy hill. We pray that you would guide us and govern us by your word, that your spirit would not be quenched in our lives, but would work in power. We pray, O oh God, that you would convict us of sin and bring, a, bring about repentance in our life. We pray that you would cause us to decrease and our Savior to ever increase in our life. We pray as we look to this text and then ultimately look to the supper that you and grace have spread before us, that our hearts would resound with the truth that surely Christ is fairer, more than 10,000, and that there is indeed no one like him. He's all that his bride, the church, needs. Cause us to look no further than him. Cause us to look nowhere else besides him. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, as Pastor Brian, I think, mentioned earlier this morning, we, he had a tough text. He might have mentioned that we have another tough text in front of us today. But that's one of the reasons why we would preach and teach through verses systematically so that we don't avoid any text of Scripture. But we want all of what God has said to be proclaimed to all of God's people and bear an impact 
on all or every aspect of their lives. As we consider uh, how God has worked in the life of each and every you know, son and daughter that is his in uh, or by the gospel, we reflect or can reflect upon where he has brought us from. And, and while where he has brought you from, it, it, it doesn't tend to be of the, uh, the best memories that you have. You know, those ones before coming to faith. But, but if you would just for a moment, think carefully back on what God has saved you from. We'll get to what he saved you to, but consider for a minute what he saved you from. And while the names, places, and details for all of us will vary, has he not set you free from the bondage that sin had over you? Now, now we can use so many different words to describe what I would think would be similar realities. And and I I prefer we use as much as we can, although it probably makes me a a biblicist, which I guess is a bad thing, but whatever. I, I would always prefer to use the Bible's language for stuff. So rather than saying addictions as though it were a disease, I'm going to say bondage to sin. Instead of saying, well, like my childhood environment, I'm a sinner who lives in a sinful world. And guess what? I loved sin. And that's what God in grace in the gospel has saved, if you're in Christ today, saved you out of. And you can say in a way that isn't mental ascent only or hypothetical or strictly just with the mouth, but you can say it from the depth of your soul, the truth of John eight thirty six. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That to the Christian is not some make-believe proposition. That to the Christian is reality. That to the Christian is who and what they are. They were in bondage to sin. And the Son set them free. Does that that mean that magically overnight the, the problem with sin went away? Sadly, that is not what that means. Does that mean I'll never be tempted by those things again? No, sadly not what that means. But it does mean that in the Son you have life and you have freedom. Now, one of the difficulties that that comes along with the Christian life is that after we've been set free, we still sometimes live like we haven't been. We still live like those old masters are still the boss. As though the chains were still around the wrist. As though the bars were still closed around us. And I want to proclaim to you today, without very much of any nuance, he set you free. Live in light of that freedom. Now that he set you free, live. Don't keep pretending or acting or believing perhaps that you're still in bondage to those old things. So the the main point is very, very simple. You have freedom 
in the Son. Live in light of that freedom. Now, we want to consider that under one gospel reality and five gospel implications. And you might say, six, you can count. Firstly, we want to consider this, the gospel reality. You have, if you're in Christ, you have died with Christ. And we'll see that in verse 20. Verse 20, Paul opens it up by saying, if... And we'll just pause there for now because that's enough to chew on. When Paul says in verse 20, if you've died with Christ, he's, I don't believe he's saying, you know what, I'm uncertain if you have. You might want to think about it. You might want to ask yourself this. I think what he's saying, if and you have. It's a way of asking a question to draw the listener into active engagement and to hear a, a fresh the, the truths of the gospel, you would ask your own heart, self or heart or whoever you are, me, I've died with Christ. Paul wants to surface that in your heart and mind before he goes on to what he's going to develop here in just a moment. He wants to remind you, another way to translate it would be, since you've died with Christ. Now, I like that he uses a question better. Number one, it's spirit-inspired that way. Number two... When you ask a question, it invites interaction. Now, sometimes you ask a question and people don't know it was rhetorical, so they answer that. That's fine, but it invites you to to, to wrestle with it and engage it and handle it yourself and say, have I indeed died with Christ? And if you're a Christian, you would say, well, I have. The day he died as my head, as my Savior, as my Lord, I died too. I died with him that day. And and that is just one of many gospel realities. Several of them were listed in verses 13 through 15. You've been made alive. You've been forgiven. You've been set free. And then he says, here's the response. Don't let people's uh, judgment or or judgment of you so sway you that you would act differently. He's actually going to wrestle with a very similar uh, set of principles this afternoon or in this text. And moving on from those, he says, now, now, if indeed you've died with Christ, I think drawing our minds back to what he said in 13 through 15, you have a, uh, there's something that has fundamentally changed about you. And he's going to look at this, uh, some this week and some next week. This week, you've died with Christ. Next week, in opening chapter 3, he'll say, you've been raised with him. So the, your death with Christ has gospel implications. Your resurrection with Christ has gospel implications. And one of those is that with death comes a bit of, well, not even a bit. It comes legal freedom. Along with that. So just as death, it might sound odd this way, but I'll just, it's the way I have it written in the notes, so we'll just ride with it. If death sets a spouse free, you can see why I wrestle with the way I should have thought about that. They're free indeed. Now, if the marriage was such that they saw that as freedom, there were probably some things in there that were not Excellent, but, but you just ride with the analogy. The death of a spouse releases the other one from those marriage covenant 
vows. The spouse is dead, and the agreement, no. Or the death of a debtor would absolve one from the debt, unless it's a credit card company, in which case they never die, you're never released from it, and then the, uh, well, it breaks down at that point. If you take that concept, death sets one free from those, from those uh, enslavements, or, well, or marriage, and, um, and they are now free from that. Look at what Paul says in verse 20 with some new eyes. You, Christian, slave to sin, slaved to the effects of sin and the prince of the power of the air and, and all that goes along with that, you died and those claims upon you likewise are dead. They do not bind you. You have, in another way of speaking of it, been set free from those things. Those masters that at one point in your life, or for all of the points in your life, up until the point where God saved you, exerted such dominance over you. You have been set free by means of death. And now Paul says, now let's push that right up to the front of the mind. And now let's think about the consequence that that gospel truth has. The first consequence then, and he'll look at four different results. I guess I'm the one who can't count. One gospel reality, four results. You've been set free, first off, from elemental spirits. Now the ESV says elemental spirits. The NASB says elemental principles. Uh, the Holman says elemental forces. The, the idea that is behind it are these, the kind of the ABCs of these principles. But more than that, he's drawing our attention to the spiritual realities that lie behind some of these things. You've been set free from the prince of the power of the air. You've been set free from the, what he'll say back in uh, chapter one, I think it is, from the rulers and the authorities. You've, you've been set free, as, as one lexicon puts it, this phrase refers to transcendent powers that are in control over the events of the world. So it's not just Paul saying, these regulations and these principles that I'm about to surface, it's not like they're just simply principles. They actually have a spiritual, for lack of a better term, pedigree. They actually have a spiritual, well, force behind them and authorities behind them. And now, considering the death that you've died with Christ, that first of uh, responses that Paul wants to surface to us in this text is this. Those spiritual authorities that once were your captors, are not anymore. That should be tremendous news for all of us who are in Christ. That would be like telling a slave, your master is dead. You are set free. You can imagine the glory that would erupt in the soul upon such news. 
Paul's already warned us about this um, elemental or these elemental spirits back in verse eight of chapter two. He says, "See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition." He'll bring that up again, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He, he's already warned the church once before not to return to those things. And now here again says, one of the reasons why you wouldn't return to them is they have no power over you anymore. You've been set free from them. As one commentator by the name of Harris puts it, he says, just as death dissolves the slave's bondage to a master, so death with Christ severs the Christian's bondage to the elemental spirits of the universe. As Peter O'Brien puts it, as death breaks the bond which binds the subject to his ruler, so dying with Christ severs the bond that bound the Colossians to the slavery of the principalities and the powers. Those old masters are not master over you any longer. Now that would have a direct impact as to how we would then respond to them. If they don't have authority any longer, then we, we shouldn't give ear to their constant barking orders and cracking of whips. Dr. Beakey tells the story of a, of a, well, it would have been back during the times of slavery in our country, and a slave ran away from his, his master and got into the forest and experiencing just this, this wondrous freedom, started to sing the songs of, of Zion as he just, just rejoiced in the fact that he was free now. And as he went and as he sang, he heard something echoing in the background, the, the baying of the dogs to come and find him. And Beaky says, you know what? The bane of the dogs stopped his songs. And fear gripped him again. He says, how many Christians are just like that with old masters that they've died to? They hear the barking of the old masters. and They think I'm, they're going to come back and enslave me. Paul says, Christian, you've died to that. They're they're not your master anymore. You need not and must not obey them any longer. The second reality or response to this gospel truth is that we've been set free from the world's regulations. Again, the first being more of the spiritual authorities that were behind these things and should therefore, as we read on, it should cause us a little bit of uh, serious and sober reflection that, to realize that these things that he'll bring up here in just a second actually are not, well, mundane or inane. They actually have spiritual things behind them and are not, uh, well, innocent, let's just say. He, you've been set free from these regulations. If you look at, the, uh, at verse 20, excuse me. He says, why? So if you've died with Christ, and you, and you have, and then you've then died to the elemental spirits of the world, he has a, a really a, an unavoidable question he's going to ask us in the middle of verse 20. Why? 
Why would you, why would I, as if we were still alive in the world, or the, the way that he says it is, is, as though you were still living in the world or of the world, why do you submit or obey their regulations? And so, again, using the question to draw in the listener, if you've died with Christ and then died then to these spiritual powers who don't have authority over you, explain to me this. Why in our lives do we still live as though we were much alive to them? And they alive to us. It's a logical question that we got to wrestle with in our own soul. As one commentator put it, he says, Paul's not wondering if you are still physically alive in this world. I mean, I'm assuming it is after lunch and warm in here. So you might be wondering if you are alive at this moment. But I don't think that's what Paul is driving at. He's not saying, do you have physical life in the physical world Obviously, because you're reading his letter or listening to it. So that's not what he's going after. What is, so if that's not what he's going after, what is it? Why do you still live obeying the things that you once obeyed? Why do you still live as though they had authority over you? Why, when they bark at you, do you respond? Why, when they threaten you, are you stricken with fear? Why, when they tempt you, do you believe their stupid lies? Again and again and again. Paul says, Christian, you've died. Why then live for these things? It's a it's a tough question to wrestle with. Because if you're, if you're, well, if you're like me, you hear that question and you just, I have no good answer. I don't plumb know. Do we doubt whether or not the, the death of Christ was efficacious? No, we don't doubt that. Do we, have we only been set partially free? Is there something lacking with God? No, no, none of that is lacking. This is a question we should ask ourselves on the, <clears throat> on the daily, on the hourly, momently. That's not even a real word. Moment by moment. That's better English. Asking ourselves, why? Why do I live this way? I've died with Christ to this. I've been set free. Why do I obey the regulations that the world and the old world and the world system put upon me? The word he uses for submit, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a tough word to wrestle with. It's to hear and obey in a submissive way under the regulations of the world as though they were still binding upon me. Now, you might have an objection at this point and say, <clears throat> The world doesn't have lists of do's and don'ts, Paul. Really? Say, that, say it to yourself again and slower. The world doesn't have lists of do's and don'ts by which they think you're morally bound to obey them? You're not very self-reflective or... Well, that's just it. That's the only explanation I can think of for that. They certainly 
have lists of do's and don'ts and expectations that they believe are morally binding upon you that are not in, uh, well, they're not consistent with the word or the law of God. Now, the list of time might vary. They might change with different seasons and different cultural movements and expectations, but, but know this. They certainly have a list of do's and don'ts that they foist upon you. Now, he will give, in verse 21, some illustrations of what some of those things are. And he gives just big, broad categories. Now, before we get into them, of these three, they're all three in the subjunctive, and, and, and that would carry along with it this sense of oughtness. You should not handle. You should not taste. You should not touch. And now, if we were to look at them and, and ask, well, what is Paul referring to here in verse 21? A quick answer, and I think a, a, a fairly right one, although it's probably not as full as I think it should be, says, well, what Paul is talking about are those readers who really, really were into the Mosaic Covenant. And so all of those reflect elements of the Mosaic Covenant, and these were the things that they were trying to get Christians to go along with. So do not handle having what we could say probably overt sexual overtones. So being moral in that sense. Do not taste, having dietary restrictions. Do not touch, talking about uh, don't touch dead bodies because they would make you unclean for temple worship. Now, is it, is it possible or even probable that that is in some degree playing in the background uh, with regards to what Paul is saying? Yeah, I, I, I don't know how you'd avoid it. My contention is I think it is overly simplistic to say that's all that Paul is speaking of. And it'd be very easy for us as American listeners to be like, not tempted by the Mosaic Covenant. I love bacon. Easy peasy. Let's just, maybe there's people out there that need to read this, but it's not me. I think the principles extend far beyond that and very much have to do with us. I think Paul is warning all who would abide by such worldly regulations and submitting themselves to them as though they were either an authority over them or a means by which they gained righteousness for themselves. Piggybacking on what Pastor Brian was saying earlier this morning, they apply to all of us. And so let's consider them each in their turn, and we won't, we won't spend too much time on them, but Number one, so there's three. Number one and number three are very similar to each other. You might say, like, what's the difference between handling and touching? They're, they're almost an identical word one to another in the Greek. And so you might say, like, well, okay, there might be a durative sense in the first one. Don't spend a lot of time with it. And then, and then it just progresses to don't even touch it. That might be the case, but it seems, it seems like there is a progression from things that you ought to have no interactions with. So the first one, just saying there are things that you ought not spend much time with or handle. We'll, we'll get to specifics here in a minute. The second one, don't taste, seems pretty obvious. There's some stuff you should not eat. You might say, who on earth would limit what you can eat? You've not been on any diet blogs recently, have you? 
You might say, looking at you, neither of you. Well, that's fair. Neither have I. So to the Jew, this would be referring to dietary restrictions. Now, some of those diet, and this is where I go from preaching to meddling, and even though you'll know I'm joking, I'll still get comments afterwards being like, yeah, that was funny, but you shouldn't say that stuff. So now that my wife and Brian are both nervous about what I'm about to say, some of those regulations make sense. Don't eat bug meat. That's what lobster is. There's reasons why God said not to do that. It's nasty. There are filters in the ocean. You shouldn't eat that junk anyway. Others, while that made sense from the light of nature itself, taught us these things. I know you're like, I can't listen to a thing he says. He doesn't like seafood. Bacon tested fidelity. He knew that was a good gift, and he was like, how much do you love God? And you smell your, your goyim, your Gentile neighbor cooking bacon? Whew, that tested the heart. That's what it was to the Jew. To the fundamentalists. Oh, man, we went from seafood to the fundy. All right. Stay with me. Tell me if this is or is not true. Not like verbally. This is, one of the, this is an illustration of those rhetorical things. Are there those who would say, you know what, the holier Christian, he doesn't drink certain beverages. You you know exactly what I'm talking about. Are there not those who would say, the good Christian, the real Christian, the higher level Christian, does not drink alcohol at all? Yeah, yes, we, we, we know of this. Or there are those who, on the food side, the moral vegan, which that seems like an odd addition of words, but those who would not for dietary reasons, if you're a vegan and it's for a dietary thing, like you do you, it's cool. But if that's a moral thing, and they would say, if you eat this as a Christian, therefore you, my argument is I'm, I'm, one st- I'm a vegan, but just one step further down the road. Cows were like they ate vegetables and magically transformed it. <laughs> In that sense, I'm as vegan as you are. <laughs> we're just one step away. We're one step away. Are there not Christians who think that there would be moral implications to the things you do or don't eat, do or don't drink? Yeah. This is not new. This is, this is not something to which the Bible does not speak. It does. Paul's argument is the world functions on things like that. The Christian has died with Christ to things like that. Now, we can poke fun, and I think it is, actually think it's fun to poke fun at some of these things so that we can see the silliness of it. You might say, well, what about the last one? Don't, don't touch. All right, to the Jew could have been a reference to, if you're going to be clean for temple worship, you can't touch a dead body. That, that seems like it'd be definitely part of it. Now, there seems to be, but there would be others who this would go right down the line with some of the previous uh, illustrations I gave. I can remember a conversation that I had, and not to make waves about the topic it was on, but it, it was about 
wine with regards to the Lord's Supper. And the person with whom I was talking to said, wine is never, these were his words, has never touched my lips, nor will it ever. And it was, I'm not saying you can't have personal decisions on things. Yep, so you can and should. But to hold that up and say, and because of this, I am better in these ways. Now we have a problem. Paul's not saying there are personal decisions where you say, you know what? I need to stay away from this, just knowing my own, my own temptations and constitution. I need to stay. That, that, that's fine. That's one thing. But to then take that and either foist it on someone else or to take that and say, and therefore I'm better than those who choose other. Paul says, no, you did that when you were in the world. We don't do that here in the church. Or at least we shouldn't do that here in the church. Now notice his judgment on these things. He says, now all of these things, verse 22, refer to things that perish as they're used. There's something in there where Paul says, like, listen, you're, you're making a huge deal on your own righteousness or what makes you a better Christian based on things that, like, as you chew it and swallow it, it's gone. Or don't chew it and swallow it, and it's not gone, it's still on the plate. He says, you get that these are things that are passing and fading away and burn up with use. Reminds me a lot of what Jesus said in Matthew 15, 11. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles. It's what comes out. Oh, that some would be as scrupulous with their words, not touching their lips, as they are about whether or not beverages or food touch their lips. Oh, we're picky and choosy with this. If we were as afraid of gossip and slander as we are of some other things, those would not be named among us. And according to Jesus, the thing that comes out of this comes from here. It's not something burned up in use. It's something that comes from our heart. His point is, is, is this. The world functions on stuff like this. Not the church. Fourthly, therefore, because of you, your death with Christ, you've been set free from human tradition. I mean, you can just see the categories kind of going through Paul's mind as he's thinking of those who are peddling this as the thing that must be added to Christ or the abstaining from this as being the thing that unlocks a, a walk with Christ or a Christian life that is even more righteous than others. I, I mean, I, I, wish I, I wish I was making some of this up. But I've actually had people tell me, in this particular case, it was a parent, and the person who was telling me was the, the son, that his parent disagreeing with some of his dietary decisions said, I'm more righteous than you because I don't. And you can fill in that blank. This stuff is here. This is, it, it actually undermines the very tenets of the gospel. Our righteousness is not found in things we eat or drink. 
Our righteousness is found in Christ Jesus. And the moment we think, I can add to that. No, you you just took away. You're going the other direction. So number four, uh, we're set free from human tradition. Now, you might say, oh man, it was one thing for you to talk about seafood. But we're Baptists here, and you're about to talk about tradition. That's meddling. Possibly. So, we are not just Baptists. You might say, God. we're Reformed Baptists, which means we're Baptists that are a little weirder. <laughs> you know it's true. Than a regular old Baptist. You know that? I've never seen this film. And, uh, so I shouldn't have said that. Because now that's the other thing you're only going to think. I've never seen Fiddler on the Roof. I'd say I was homeschooled, but all the homeschoolers have probably seen it too. So I'm a really bad version of it. But there's a song I've heard from that film about tradition. I won't sing it for you because that would be emotionally damaging. But that for a lot of churches, especially Baptist churches, especially RB churches, Reformed Baptists, that's their theme song, tradition. And so I would ask you, is it possible that you could sit somewhere else? You'd say, no. <laughs> Thank you for asking. You're like, but could you talk to the person that does sit in my seat? Because they don't know that it's not cool. All right, so as a Baptist, now I say this as someone who sits in the same seat every Sunday, so I'm chief among you here. Do we love tradition? Does tradition have a place? Yes. Is it a valuable place? Yes. Does it make us more righteous? No, that was a pump fake. I'm glad you knew that it was a trap. It doesn't make us more righteous. Is it helpful to learn from other Christians who've thought deeply and well about the things of God? I think it's very helpful. You go into my library, it is full of people who've thought deeply and well about the things of God. I love, I I love the rich heritage. That's the more spiritual way of saying tradition of what we have here as Christians. So long as it stays in its place. So long as it's not, I'm better than you. I didn't point at Don, I just pointed that way. I'm better than you, whoever is over here. Because, oh, we do this. Oh, we do this. I'm better than you because we do this, that, or the other thing. Now, he he mentions two different kind of categories. According to, and there's no, uh, well, it's pretty telling that he says these are human precepts and teachings. Now, those are different than the ones that come to us from the word of God itself. Those aren't optional. Those are given to us by God, revealed to us that we know how it is that we ought to live in this world. Paul says, now you got to watch yourself on the human teachings or precepts and teachings. Now you might say, what's the difference between the two? A precept, if we could draw a distinction, might be a real specific distinction, whereas teaching might be more general, um, kind of... I guess just, yeah, teaching. So if you wanted an illustration of a precept that was specific, it is my seat. A more general teaching is there has to be mystery casseroles at any church gathering. Just to illustrate it. The mystery meat casseroles. 
I never roll the dice on that. I'll just be honest. It's low reward, high cost. Does tradition have a place? <laughs> yeah. Is an overemphasis making its way right through Reformed Baptist as we speak? Yeah. Is it dividing brothers and sisters? Yeah. Does the Lord hate it when his people divide over stuff like this? Yeah. Does he loathe it when I, as a, let's just say Jesse has a set of traditions that are different than mine. Does it grieve the Lord? For me is a sin Soaked sinner, saved by grace alone, thinking that I, because of some dumb tradition, are better than another sinner who's been saved by that very same grace. That's like, oh, we're both saved, but I'm like up here. That, we'll call it what it is, that's wicked. That's wicked. And the devil loves to separate Christians. On stuff like that. What you eat that's different than what I do. Where you sit that might be where I used to sit. One of you is going to sit in my seat next week. I know, just to mess with me. But by grace, I'll just bear it. Think that I'm better than you. So, fifth. Fifth and last, because we're already going late. You've been set free from forced asceticism. He's already mentioned this, so we won't belabor the point too, uh, too much longer. Look down at verse uh, 23. He says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. So he's not, notice what he's not saying. He's not saying these, you know what I mean? It's why. He's saying this looks like wisdom. This is labeled wisdom. But it is not wisdom. Not everything that's called wisdom is wisdom. Not everything that's labeled wisdom is wisdom. There are things that are, you can find at the store that have the term bacon on them. And guess what is not in them? It ain't bacon. But it's got the name on there. Not everything that says it's wisdom, brothers and sisters, is wisdom. You might look at it and be like, wow, that Christian is a cut above. They don't even eat this, that, or the other thing. They don't drive this or do that. They don't even have fun. I've yet to see them smile. And that's how I know they're holier. They've got the scowl. <laughs> now, some of you are really self-conscious, like, I don't want to smile, but I'm smiling just so he doesn't think that I'm that way. These look like wisdom. Have they entrapped many before us? Yeah, they have. Yeah, there, there, there are whole denominations set up around this stuff that I, and I've had, I've had, uh, time would uh, escape uh, all of us and I'd get in trouble for going too long. If I did, I've had people sit in my office, grown men, weeping over the way that some of these things have been foisted on them from childhood and destroyed them. These are real, brothers and sisters. These, these things afflict the conscience like no one's business. I've known many a young Christian 
who languished under the weight of some of these things well into adulthood, thinking that for some odd reason the way that they were was less acceptable to God or less savable because of these things. It's wickedness. So while it may be called wisdom, it is not wisdom. It reminds me of a quote from Abraham Lincoln. It says, better be thought a fool and be silent than open your mouth and remove all doubt. That's kind of like that with wisdom. They're like, if you listen to some of these things, they're like, you know, this is wise. This is the way to do it. And as soon as they say, you're like, oh, no. Yeah, no, that's not wisdom at all. Notice how Paul describes this. He pulls no punches in this. He calls it self-made religion. If that doesn't, like, set off some alarms in your mind, self-made, like, you don't want a DIY religion. Not good. It comes from the heart of man, and contrary to what Disney says, you should not follow that wretched heart. They don't say wretched, but it, they, they tell, I tell my kids all the time when you hear a movie, follow your heart. Like, no, what is it? Desperately wicked. Exactly. Don't follow that thing. <laughs> Self-made religion is the same thing. It's like custom-tailored religion by me, for me, and if I'm really good, it's not just for me, I'm going to foist this on other people around me too. Paul says this is nonsense. He says, he uses asceticism again, that idea of intentional deprivation or humbling, as as though the physical body were the problem, and so by punishing it or depriving it, my soul is somehow improved by that, and so I either... Whether it's what Rome does in causing people to crawl upstairs on their knees, thinking that some punishment of the body will help the soul. It's nonsense. The world does stuff like that. Notice where Paul adds to it severity to the body. Uh, Again, these are the worldly things that the world does. Notice his evaluation of all of these things from from verse 20 all the way down to the end of verse 23. All of them are summed up in that last sentence. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul says, do you know what all of these things add up to? All the the, the huge lists of human traditions, of human do's and don'ts, uh, of still listening to the barking orders, of the elemental spirits, of still living as though you were alive to, uh, to those things and having to obey the regulations, to those Human precepts and teachings and the, and the self-made religion and asceticism and, and severity to your body. Paul says, pile it all up. And guess what I say? A heaping pile of nothing. Worthless. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. The lists of do's and don'ts don't magically transform this thing. If you're still wrestling with that, that is breaking news to you. You can say don't and do to your heart all day long. And it is not transformed. But do you know what does, I'll change it. Do you know who does transform the heart? Christ does. And his grace does. 
Now his law, which is actually in his word, not man-made, not human teaching and tradition, not human precepts, not that. His law drives us to him, and he and his grace transform us. So what do we run to or who do we run to again and again and again seeking further sanctification, seeking further transformation, seeking further growth? You don't run to these things. You go to Christ again and again and again and again. Now you have a marvelous opportunity this afternoon. Because one of the ways that he pours grace into the life of a believer, a transforming grace, is in the celebration of the supper by faith. What better way to remind yourself it isn't about the other foods that I do or don't eat. It is about him. It's not about all this other stuff that I do or don't do that changes me or transforms me. He changes and transforms. There's not just imagery there, but there's powerful imagery in the Lord's table. Saying again to the soul, the table of the world has nothing for me. And the table of Christ has all that I need. So if you are here and you are a Christian, You are one who has died with Christ to these things and are, we'll get to it next week, alive, raised with Christ and seated with him where he is. Therefore, seek him, not these things. Seek the one who actually has the power to transform Our hearts, what we love, how we act and what we think and what we say, he can actually change us. The world, all they can do is change the window dressing on it, hoping that by what they eat or don't eat or what they do or don't do can magically change the heart. It can't. Only Christ can. And so as we come to the supper, We come not saying, I had a good week because of this, that, and the other. No. You had a sinful week. And that's why, again, we need the supper. We're weak, sinful people who need strength and transformation. And so we come not to these things, but we go to Christ, who alone can transform us. Let's pray. Father, we ask that even in difficult passages of Scripture, that you would change us and transform us. Oh God, help us to say by faith to our hearts again and again and again, Christ is all that we need. Help us not to say it as a mindless mantra, but as a truth that we need deep down in our bones, a truth that we are so prone to forget. Forgive us for the ways we've sought to add to him. Forgive us for the things that we've obeyed this week that had no authority over us. And bind our hearts more closely to him. Do it for the good of your people and the glory of your name we ask. 
Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.